The reading this morning is from Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, a song of ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, it's great to be opening up uh, God's Word. Well, we're really full this morning, actually. It's just kind of <laughs> a little daunting. Um, but yeah, it's great to be opening up God's Word with you once again uh, this morning. I've been so excited throughout this week just by the prospect of, of preaching this text today. So it's really great to be here and to see you all here. Before we begin, I'd just like to acknowledge that whenever Alan and I were asked to speak on this date in South and East, respectively, I'd say we were probably blissfully unaware that we were following a week when we had Steve Timmis here, so uh, no pressure at all. Um, Steve joked last Sunday that his wife frequently reminds him when he's preaching uh, just to be aware of a certain resting facial expression that he has, so I'm hopeful that that's not where the similarities between Steve and myself will end uh, today, but you guys can be the judge of that, so... But let's get started. Uh, Hopefully you've got your Bibles open at Psalm 128, as Steve has just read for us. And in this next installment in our Psalms of Ascent series, we're going to see a lot of crossover between this one and Psalm 127, uh, which John spoke on just a couple of weeks ago. And in Psalm 127, we learned this vital lesson uh, that we can apply to all aspects of life that can be just summarized with the two words, unless God. Unless God, we have nothing. Psalm 127 verse 1 tells us, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And this applies not only to our work, but to our family life, our relationships, our parenting, our church life, and most importantly, perhaps, to our own salvation. Unless God creates, nothing is created. Unless God sustains, nothing is sustained. Unless God redeems, nothing is redeemed. And unless God saves, none of us here today are saved. And so as God's people who are saved and are redeemed by him, our call is one of a reordering of our lives around this truth, and a call to praise him for his perfect power and sovereignty that in both times of blessing and suffering, he does all that only he can do. And as we move into Psalm 128, this is another example of the wisdom literature that we saw in 127. And this will round off the third little group of five uh, in the Psalms of Ascent. And as we've worked through this series so far and looked at these little pockets of interlinked Psalms, we've seen a similar pattern displayed. As we trace the physical geographical journey of the pilgrims as they ascend towards Jerusalem, we can also see their spiritual ascent to a place and a posture of worship. In Psalm 126, we see the Israelites expressing their need for God. In Psalm 127, we see Israel acknowledging the power of God through what he has done in their lives up to this point. And now in Psalm 128, we will see Israel's security and hope in light of God's power. 
And being the third in this little group of three, it's been described as a psalm of arrival. This is the song of the pilgrims as they've arrived in Jerusalem to worship. They're arriving at the point of worship which they've journeyed to reach. And in this, I think we can see a really helpful piece of imagery um, that we can relate to our own lives. It's only as we're aware of our need that we can acknowledge the power of God in relation to that need, that we can bring ourselves and our very lives to a place of real and true worship of Him for who He is and what He has done. It's only as we're aware of our needs and as we acknowledge the power of God that we can bring ourselves to a place of real and true worship. And so Psalm 128 follows on in a similar vein to what has preceded it. It flows out of what the psalmist has taught us in Psalm 127. But it's not just more of the same rehashed, and rather we see a theme emerge in this psalm that we haven't yet seen to this extent, and that is the theme of blessing. The psalmist is writing about how and where we find blessing in our lives. Up until this point in the eight psalms of ascent so far that we've explored, the words blessed, blessed, or blessing have only been used twice, and yet in these six short verses of Psalm 128, we're going to see those words used four times. This in itself gives us a clear idea of what this psalmist is, what this psalm is about and what the psalmist is getting at here. And this is where we're going to spend some time this morning exploring what the psalmist from all his wisdom and his rich experience has to tell us about blessing and where we can find it on the journey of life. So let me pray before we go any further. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the power that it contains. May your Holy Spirit speak freely through even my imperfect and so inadequate words that our hearts would be transformed, that our lives would be changed, and that ultimately you would be glorified. In your name, amen. If I wanted to go for like the cheesy or corny sermon title this morning, it would have to be Living Your Blessed Life. Uh, it, I still find it odd that the words bless and blessed seem to be so on trend at the minute. It only takes us first to scroll through news and... Thomas is hashtagging already here. Um, it only takes for us to scroll through um, our news and social media feeds to see some of the most well-known worldly celebrities showing off to the world how much they are hashtag blessed. The reality, however, is that more often than not, this just seems to be references being made to their exuberant wealth and their material success. Look at all that I've got, aren't I so blessed? And in this, something which has the guise of humility is really nothing more than what's become known as the humble brag. And yet we may rightly raise an eyebrow at such flippant use of this word today, but I feel that sometimes even our own understanding of this concept, which is so integral to our faith, is not always where it should be at. And so we're going to firstly look at what it means to be truly blessed according to God's word. I wonder if you've ever thought about why we say the words bless you whenever someone sneezes. This, this is maybe a better known fact than I realize, but on researching the origins of this phrase this week, I discovered that the answer can be found in the children's nursery rhyme, Ring a Ring of Rosies. I was horrified to learn this week that this innocent sounding little rhyme is actually a juvenile drama about the events of the Great Plague in the Middle Ages. Mind blown. Um, and with sneezing being one of the kind of onset symptoms of a fatal dose of the plague, 
all fall down as the rhyme goes is exactly what would have happened to those who had contracted that fatal dose. So when our innocent little kids are acting out and singing this rhyme, they're reenacting the effects of the plague and people dying, like it's crazy. Um, and so people using the words bless you around someone sneezing can be traced as far back as then. And Sinclair Ferguson helpfully points out that this kind of long-winded example can actually help us grasp in essence what blessing means. You see, in the Middle Ages, people had a very simple understanding of the plague. They viewed it as a sign of God's judgment. And so when they saw symptoms of what they believed was this judgment, the words bless you or may the Lord bless you was essentially a prayer asking God to remove that curse of the plague that would ultimately result in that person's death. And this provides us with a great illustration of what the Bible tells us is meant by blessing. See, the word bless in the Bible characteristically means that God is removing curse from those who trust him, then giving to them that which they don't deserve out of his favor and his perfect goodness. The pinnacle of this, of course, is seen in the judgment curse of sin being removed from man, who is then blessed with forgiveness of sins and right standing with God. And so as Sinclair Ferguson goes on to point out, blessing and cursing are the two fundamental words which help us understand the gospel. I am under the judgment of God, so I run from him, but through Jesus Christ I can be brought back into friendship with God, and that is the blessing of the gospel. So as Christians, we may use this word frequently. We may rightly attribute good things in our life and things we are thankful for as blessings from God. We pray for God's blessing on our families, our church, and we ask God to bless those in need. But is this just something that we say? Has this just become part of our Christian phraseology that we now take for granted? And if true blessing was to look like us having the model family, the perfect relationship, and the successful accumulation of all the material things we could ever wish for, surely that would mean that some of us who have all of those things are more blessed than others. Well, let's look at what God's Word says. Psalm 128, verse 1 reads, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. And the first thing in this verse that's going to help us unlock the true meaning of God's blessing is the word, the original word used here for blessing in verse 1. The original Hebrew word used is closely linked to the Greek word found frequently in the New Testament of makarios. And so as we look to places in Scripture where we see this word used, what kind of a picture does it paint? Does it paint a picture of people who are blessed having their lives together? Do those who are blessed have everything they've ever wished for materially? Well, let's look at a few examples. Luke chapter eleven twenty eight tells us that blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. James chapter 1 verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And in Matthew 5 in various verses it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. You see, in the 112 references to bless, blessing, or blessed in the New Testament, there's not one instance which connects this blessing to health or material prosperity. More common, in fact, are links between blessing and poverty, 
or the spiritual benefits of being joined to Jesus in our suffering. This word makarios refers specifically to a deep satisfaction and contentment, regardless of circumstances, found in those receiving God's favor. It describes a state or a condition of a believer only as a result of God's divine blessing. And so the psalmist is not talking in Psalm 128 about the short-term temporal circumstantial happiness to be found in the things of the world. Instead, he's talking about a joy and a complete contentment that does not waver under circumstance. This, however, is something that has always that, that the world has always been at odds with. The world says the source of contentment, the source of happiness, and the source of joy is having what you want. Have more, go and get it, do what you want, and you'll have what you want. More and more we hear the phrase, you do you, do whatever makes you happy. And this is the attitude of the world, and it has been since Genesis chapter 3. The psalmist in this psalm very deliberately steers us back to the garden, and we'll see more of this as we, we unpack the rest of the psalm. But while the psalmist tells us that we experience this deep, unrelenting joy and contentment when we walk in the ways of the Lord, the flesh, the devil, and the world all deny this. And this is the lie that the serpent told Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. In verse 4 of that chapter we read, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here the serpent is saying, Eve, you do you. Do what makes you happy. If you want to be like God, disobey God, and you will find true blessedness. But the psalmist says this is not the way to true and lasting blessing. Sure, it may give us momentary, temporal, circumstantial satisfaction, but it will leave us under the judgment curse of sin. In the garden, the serpent separates holiness from happiness. And in Psalm 128, the psalmist is putting these things back together. And as we see, he goes on to tell us that holiness is the place in which we find the happiness that God intends for us. And so keeping the Garden of Eden in mind, we can see that in everything God blesses us with in our lives and all the good he gives to us, he is bit by bit reversing the effects of the fall. James chapter 1 verse 17 reads, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We rightly give thanks for and praise God for all the things he blesses us with materially. However, this shouldn't be the measure of our blessedness. If our level, if our level of blessedness could be measured by the things that we have, this would not make us turn towards God. Instead, it would make us proud, self-reliant, and feeling like we have no need for him. Our sinful nature means that we still all too easily worship gift over giver. If blessing looked like us having all the things that we had ever wanted materially, everything would seem perfect, and we would not feel the need to trust him who has created those things in the first place. Our circumstances wouldn't open up our eyes to the fact that we need God. So having considered all of this, how then can we summarize what God's blessing looks like? This blessing that results in this condition or state of deep satisfaction and contentment and peace. 
Simply put, Scripture tells us that blessing is anything God gives to make us fully satisfied in Him. Anything that draws us closer to Jesus, anything that takes our focus off the things of this world and fixes our eyes on the glorious Christ. As well as the unmerited gifts that we receive which drive us to thankfulness, so too can it be the struggles, the trials, the pain, and the loss and disappointments of life that best enable us to worship Him. What can often be perceived in worldly terms as an absence or a lack of blessing is often the place that God brings us to where He pushes us and pushes us into deeper communion with Him than we ever thought imaginable. I read this week that in pain and loss, we long for presence. We long to know that God is for us and in us and with us. Great families, financial wealth, and good health are all wonderful things that we can and should thank God for, but they are not His greatest blessings. They make us delight not in God, but in His gifts. And so, as the Psalms of Ascent have shown us and continue to show us an awareness of our needs and of only God's ability to meet those needs is an essential part of the journey that leads us to worship Him for who He is and what He has done. And therefore, we can say that blessing is any way in which God has removed the curse of sin and its effects in our life and given to us out of His favor that which we don't deserve and that which makes us satisfied in Him. Blessing is anything which steers us closer to God, anything that deepens our satisfaction in Him, as the only one who can truly satisfy. So the psalmist tells us this true blessing is found in the fear of the Lord. Still in verse one here. Those who fear the Lord, and as he goes on to write, those who walk in his ways will have lives marked with this inner contentment, this inner satisfaction that we've just considered. The place in which we find this blessing is in the fear of the Lord. I wonder if you ever think about the fear of the Lord or what it looks like to fear the Lord in your life. My guess is it probably isn't that common a feature of your your conversation or your thoughts, but if we look to God's words, we will see over 170 examples of this phrase across the Old and New Testament. So I think it's safe to say it's probably something that we need to take note of. John Piper says, the fear of the Lord is not marginal. It is throughout the Bible. It is all over the Bible. So often I think we can be quick to, to compartmentalize or to even want to compartmentalize the idea of the fear of the Lord with the image that we hold of the God of the Old Testament. And we almost use the gospel and the good news and the kind of feel-good of the gospel to override the fearsomeness of God. However, when we do this, we're in danger of diminishing the sinful nature and the severity of man's sinful nature and how seriously God deals with this. And when we turn to the New Testament, we do find, in fact, that the fear of the Lord is actually just as present in there, in the teachings of Jesus and Paul and Peter as it is in the Old Testament. Yes, we see that the Old Testament is loaded with examples of the command to fear the Lord and warnings to those who don't do it. For example, Proverbs 28:14 reads, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And here this kind of explains for us what it means to fear the Lord. 
fearing God is contrasted with a hard or unperceptive heart. But fearing God is then matched with humility, lowliness, and sensitivity of heart, receptiveness to what God is doing in us. But even as covenant believers, new covenant believers, the sheer majesty, holiness, and terrifyingly awesome power of God cannot be ignored in our lives. We diminish the very image of God if we do not think that these attributes of Him that Scripture tells us about are not worthy of our trembling. The good news of the gospel, however, is that for those of us who know Christ as our Savior, this is a fear and trembling in awe, not a cowering kind of fear for ourselves or fearing that we're not safe kind of fear. It doesn't mean a cringing terror, but rather it speaks of a knowledge of God and an intimacy with Him that creates more an overwhelming sense of awe at the deep privilege of knowing Him rather than a terror at His presence. As believers, it's not just this awesome holiness that, that we tremble before, but at the privilege of being the recipients of His perfect and passionate love for us, that He even gave His Son for us. It's a fear which cannot get over how gloriously wonderful it is to know that He loves and cares for us this much. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13 reads that... The writer of the Philippians, Paul, says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here Paul is saying that we should fear and tremble because God is working to keep us. God is working in us and for us. And this fear should be a motive for us not turning away and running from him. That God is working in us his plan for us in which we can seek refuge from him and from his wrath. I mean, if that's not terrifying in a way that's really good for us, I don't know what is. And consider just for a minute how much more terrifying it must be to be outside of Christ when we're dealing with a God that powerful and that fearsome. See, the fear of the Lord is not just a set of beliefs or an inner attitude. It's expressed in the way we live our lives. It's expressed in walking in His ways and not going our own way. What we do shows who we are and it shows who we love. And when we as believers worship God in all areas of our life, in how we live and what we pursue and in what we value, this shows a true fear of the Lord. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We all in and of ourselves have turned to our own way. And we're under the judgment curse of sin because of that. And yet God in his goodness and his grace and his mercy through the price his son paid has made a way for us to walk in his ways. In the upper room the night before Jesus was betrayed, he shared with his disciples the cup of blessing. And then the next day in the garden, he took from his father the cup of curse and he drank it to the end and carried out all that it represented for us so that we could walk in his ways. And so as we look 
further at the fear of the Lord in the New Testament, we see that it's not any sort of bare terror, but it's still something that should rightly be called fear. Paul speaks of knowing what it means to fear the Lord and how this spurs him on to evangelize. Paul's life is marked with, the, with a preoccupation of a question of basically whether or not when he meets Christ, he will be delighted with him, but rather when he meets Christ, if Christ will be delighted with Paul. This marks everything that Paul does and all his actions. Peter further calls us to live in a reverent fear because we know the Father, and even more so, we know the price that the Son has paid for us. In other words, this fear is not one that paralyzes, but it's one that motivates. It's one that guards us against displeasing God, who we know has loved and so loves us. And in motivating us to a holy living, we can say, we, we can say with assurance that in this way, it's no fear at all. We should praise God that he has revealed himself to us through not only his salvation, but also his law. God's law is the revealed lifestyle for his redeemed people, which matches his holy nature. And so when we fear the Lord and walk in his ways, we're responding to the glorious God of salvation and reverence. And as Psalm chapter 2 verse 11 puts it, we serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And so the psalmist tells us that true blessing is experienced in the fear of the Lord not a cringing, servile dread that God could at any point wipe us out, but as Ligon Duncan beautifully puts it, it's an affection for our Heavenly Father that so moves us in reverence and awe and love for Him that we tremble at the idea of sin even if there were no hell. We would tremble to offend Him because we love Him and honor Him and respect him so much. The psalmist says, when someone lives like this, there is undeniable blessing. It is through this fear that we find true happiness, true blessing, and true joy. And so we've taken quite a bit of time to consider what verse one of this psalm means when it says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. We've looked at this, what this blessing means and this, what this state of contentment enjoyed by the believer looks like. But we've also explored the fear of the Lord and what this looks like and how it manifests itself in our lives. And as we move into the rest of the psalm, the psalmist paints an idealized picture of the areas of our lives in which we can expect to see God's blessing. The psalmist knows that in this world is not where we will find our ultimate rewards, and we will still experience suffering in this world. But he unpacks for us the fact that all of those who fear God will experience a foretaste of the fullness of the joy and the blessings to come in heaven. So where do we experience these blessings? Once again, the psalmist steers our attention back to the Garden of Eden and God's original created order to show how God's blessing begins reversing the effects of the fall on this side of glory. So where do we see these blessings or foretastes? Verse two reads, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. 
Here we see God's blessing in the work that we do daily. After the fall in Genesis 3, sin had brought vanity and toil into work, but here we see another little picture of God reversing the effects of this. The psalmist tells us that with God's blessing, our work is not in vain. While there's no guarantee of prosperity, it restores in us, or restores in us our original created purpose to work and to accomplish things. It's God restoring his original created order for us. God blesses us in this, in this life with meaningful work and labor that isn't in vain. We're able to eat the fruit of the labor of our hands. We're able to work and reap the rewards from our work because, because God blesses us through this. In verse 3, we see God's blessing in the general life of the family and in man's relationship to his wife and ultimately his children. It reads, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Psalmist here is saying that your wife will be like a fruitful vine in your house. But this is more than just a reference to childbearing. But rather it's a reference to her value to her husband. And the delight that a husband takes in his wife. And once again, we're steered back to, to Genesis and to the Garden of Eden. Ligon Duncan further points out that the first not good in Genesis was that it was not good for Adam to be alone. God brings woman to Adam and says, this is what you need. You have me, but I'm saying you need your wife. Then what I created will be good. Just think of the enormity of that. This is a picture of what our lives should be like together in a Christian marriage, a relationship that reflects a man and his wife's very purpose to be with one another, a relationship marked by a dependence and a deep valuing and love for one another, recognizing that each other is a blessing from God. We then see through the remainder of the psalm how God blesses us with children and grandchildren and how we receive the blessing of being part of the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan for the world through his church. This shows us that the blessings bestowed by God upon those who fear him overflow from that person into relationships and families through churches and even across generations. And we see just how important our own godliness is and the far-reaching impacts God tells us that we'll have. Verse 4 reads, Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. But here we see a different word used by the psalmist to express the idea of blessing in all of the areas we've just covered. Here the verb which is used that translates as to bless, refers to God's action of bestowing to us by his grace something of particular benefit. And in using this language, the psalmist is telling us that the things which God blesses us with are no accident. They are his chosen benefits for us, which come about through his divine action for those who fear him and walk in his ways. The difficulty for us, however, when we hear that is that we're all aware there are, there are both blessings and griefs in the world. The psalmist understands this. And in this psalm, he is painting a picture of how things once were and how things will be when we look forward to glory. 
But right now, all of, the, all of us who fear the Lord get at least a little foretaste of those blessings to come. And we mustn't take these for granted as we don't know how long we'll have them and we don't know what way we will have them. There's no hiding from the fact that some of us, some godly, God-fearing, blessed believers only receive a certain measure of these blessings. But these things are only the smallest foretaste of the blessedness to come for all of us. In all of life's griefs, losses, sorrows, remember that our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, has borne all of these griefs. He's carried all of these sorrows. As we look back to Isaiah 53 once again, we see that even more than that, He has borne our iniquities. He has paid the price for us to be washed whiter than snow and to one day experience all of these blessings in their fullness, their entirety, and their completeness. What a thing to look forward to that is. So as we close, as we kind of wrap this up, we've seen what God's blessing and what true blessedness looks like. We've seen what it looks like to fear the Lord and to, to be the recipients of that blessing. And as we look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, we're reminded that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more the heavenly Father to those who fear him and walk in his ways. These immeasurably good gifts that are being spoken about here are the blessings the psalmist is speaking about in Psalm 128, which are poured out by God to those who fear him. There's a beautiful hymn which I can remember singing growing up called Glorious Things of the Air Spoken. And I don't think I understood much of it when I was a child at the time, but it contains the beautiful line, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Brothers and sisters, we are Zion's children. And when we fear and love and worship our heavenly Father and glorious Savior with all that we have, there we and only we will find solid joys and lasting treasure. Amen.